This morning we are in Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be looking at, or I'll be reading, uh, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, good morning, church. Welcome to Trinity. It is great to see you. If you are new here, we are really glad that you are with us and look forward to connecting with you today or another time. Uh, this feels like the first Sunday of summer to me. So if we could just celebrate that for a minute, I feel like I love it. We made it through the spring, just humid as a mug, but we, are, we have arrived in the summer. Well, it was a few years ago, 2013, uh, New York Magazine did an interview with the Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, and the interviewer was asking all sorts of questions and asked him about his faith, if he really believed in heaven and hell. And then after he answered, she tried to sort of quickly change the subject back to, to politics. And then Judge Scalia leaned in and said, I even believe in the devil. Like this just funny, hilarious line from the old guy. And she is totally, totally thrown off. Uh, she's taken aback and she says, you do? And he says, of course, yes, he's a real person. Hey, come on, that's standard Catholic doctrine. And she says, have you seen any evidence of the devil lately? Uh, and then Scalia responds, in the Gospels, the devil is doing all sorts of stuff. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't happen very much anymore, and it's because he's smart. What he's doing now is getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. He used to be all over the New Testament. Now he got wilier. And the interviewer is, is so shocked by this. She's so appalled, and, and she's like struggling to find words. And she asks if it's terribly frightening to believe in a literal devil. And I love his response. He says, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? You travel in circles that are so, so far removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. And this, this short exchange became like the story of the week. I mean, you can literally, if you just Google it, there's a story on every single website, every news media outlet, every podcast. And people are saying, how could he believe in a literal devil? I mean, how could we have a, a lawmaker in this high possession that would believe something as primitive as an actual literal devil? And so everybody was just giving their opinions on it over and over. And I think the response is revealing that our culture is somewhat sensitive to belief in God, 
But when it comes to the devil, to demons, to demonic activity in our world today, it's just too much. It's too weird. It's too out there, too hyper-spiritual. And I think it, even as Christians, especially if, if we're in a, a word-centered church like, like this one where we love the word and we're, we're committed to the word, there's, there's still a risk that we might not really believe in the devil or might not really believe that, that spiritual warfare is a thing that we need to be aware of and, and on the lookout for at all times. There's a few reasons for that. Maybe we haven't explored or taken seriously the, the biblical teaching where this comes up over and over and over again. Perhaps we're afraid that a, a focus on the demonic will open us up to, to spiritual attack and we'll like find ourselves in a scene from The Exorcist and so we're just like, keep it all out there, away from us. Maybe we're afraid that emphasizing spiritual warfare will, will make us one of those sort of sensational, fanatical churches and we don't want to be that. Maybe even it's that our lifestyles are so insulated that we have no direct interaction with the demonic. And I can picture somebody on, on the sidelines of a football game saying, this seems safe, I, I haven't been tackled yet. And in the same way, if we're on the sidelines of life and faith, you may have very, very little interaction with spiritual warfare at all. Now, rejecting a literal devil or minimizing the place of warfare in our life, it doesn't exempt us from the attacks of the enemy, but rather it makes us more susceptible to those hidden, sneaky, wily attacks. We have to understand the nature of our spiritual opposition in order to take our stand in the Lord. And so what I want to do, I think this passage is so important for us in our day, in our culture, in our church, that so we're actually going to look at these verses over two weeks. So this Sunday, I'm going to look at the first three verses, which is all about the attack that comes against us. And then next week, we're going to look at the next five verses, which is our, our response, what it looks like to stand firm and put on the armor of God. So three things for today, spiritual warfare, what it is, what it's like today, and then third, how the war is won. So what is spiritual warfare, what it's like today, and then how the war is won. We'll begin with what it is. Verses 10 and 11 say this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Against the devil's schemes. Now we have to understand who our enemy is if we are going to resist and, and stand against this enemy. And we might struggle to believe in a literal devil in our culture because we're taught that evil is impersonal, that it's only the result of, of systems of brokenness. And if we could only have better education and better policies, then we could eradicate evil once and for all. There was actually a book that came out in the last decade, a, a secular scholar from Columbia University, and it's called The Death of Satan. And he says that a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. What he's saying is that we still see evil all over our world, but without a, a traditional belief in a, in a literal devil, which people have had for thousands of years, without that belief, we have no intellectual resources for explaining evil. And so he's saying we need to, we need to come up with a cohesive argument for why there is such evil in the world. And I don't think he really ever settles on one. And so maybe belief in the devil and demons and, and even pervasive demonic activity, maybe it's not so outlandish at all. We need to believe the Bible's teaching that Satan is a literal 
person, not, not an impersonal force, but rather a person who commands a, an evil legion of demons in an attack against us and against God's kingdom. We did a series on the Lord's Prayer earlier, uh, well, rather last year in 2020, and there are six main petitions in the Lord's Prayer, and we said that the Lord's Prayer is, is designed to be a, a structure for our prayer life. And so the things that are in the Lord's Prayer are things that we should be praying every single day. And the sixth petition is deliver us from the evil one. And so in Jesus' most condensed and most basic teaching on prayer, he says this is something you must do. You must pray, deliver us from the evil one. Verse 12 is the verse we're going to spend the most time on in our passage today. Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so I believe he's, he is describing three categories of, of evil and demonic activity. The first one, he uses the phrase demonic uh, rulers and authorities, or rather he uses the words rulers and authority, but we know that he's talking about demonic rulers because he's just said it's not flesh and blood, but rather these rulers and authorities. And so what the church has, has typically believed and understood is that the devil and demons have a, a coordinated structure or organization of evil that comes against us as people. And the idea is, the most logical explanation is, because the devil and demons are fallen angels, which we know from 2 Peter 2 and Jude 1, that they have designed their attacks against us after the kingdom of God, after the organization of, of angels and the, the good structure that God set up in the heavenly realms. And so they've, they've distorted that and they've made their own version of that, which is uh, full of these different sort of, of strategies of evil and, and groups of demons that come against us. Six different words are used to describe classes or categories of demonic activity in the New Testament. Principalities, authorities, powers, dominions, thrones, and world rulers. Now that's the first category, these demonic rulers and authorities that are part of the devil's schemes against us. The second category is the evil powers of this dark world. And so the first one is more direct, these demonic rulers and authorities. The second one is more indirect. It's evil that, that moves through uh, sinful, broken human beings in the world, those who don't believe in Christ and the indirect influence that the devil has. In John 5, Jesus says, We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's saying a person either categorically belongs to God or belongs to the devil. And I get that that's not a very popular teaching. That's not something you probably lead with in sharing your faith with your neighbor. We're saying you either belong to God and his kingdom or to the devil and his kingdom. Earlier in Ephesians 2, we saw that Paul calls Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air, meaning that his work in our society and our world is as pervasive as the air is in our world. It's everywhere. Now, Sam Storms is a, a pastor and theologian that I've, um, I've known for a long time. I consider him a friend and a mentor, and I think he's written the best book on spiritual warfare. And this isn't one of those times where I say there's one best book and then I list like six books. I know I do that a lot. There's literally just one excellent book on spiritual warfare. It's just called Understanding Spiritual Warfare. But in it, Dr. Storms says this. He says, Satan ex exerts an insidious influence 
on the financial world, business and industry, athletics, the stock market, the banking system, political institutions and parties, entertainment, the internet, education, the family, the home, the neighborhood, civic clubs, social service organizations, and country clubs. We must reckon with a global satanic influence. And so again, this is the, the indirect, the force of evil coming into our world through all these different forms. Now, I think this is true. Behind the lies of individuals and, and ideology, there is a deceiver at work. Behind the violence done by criminals and extremists, there's a murderer at work. Behind institutional forces of racism and oppression, there's an adversary at work. Behind the appeals to sex, power, and control, there is a tempter at work. Behind all the wars of our world, there is a dragon at work. Behind all of these systems of evil in our world, the devil is there. And so that's the second category, the powers of this dark world. And the third one is the evil forces in the heavenly realms. Verse 12 says that the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that phrase we've talked about before, the heavenly realms, in your Bibles it might just be called the heavenlies. Now, Paul uses that phrase five times in Ephesians, and then it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. But the first four times, it's describing the, the work of, of Christ over all eternity, and, and specifically in, uh, in the lives of the angels above us. It's, it's describing this, this realm that is unseen and eternal, and it's Paul's way of saying, hey, fix your eyes on what's above, what's eternal, even though it's unseen. So kind of lift your eyes from this world and from the things you see around you and see that there's a reality that exists just as real or more real than what we can see here on earth. But it's in this last example of, of the heavenly realms that he describes this spiritual battle as if there's a battle going on between angels and demons above us at all times. And so all of these principles come out of Ephesians 6, these three different forms of the enemy's schemes. Are you all doing okay there? I know that's a lot of like, that's a lot of content. That's a lot of hard stuff. And nothing in me wants to give our enemy any more credit or any more focus than, than he should because he deserves none of it. And yet we have to recognize his schemes, have to recognize the Bible's teaching on our enemy. And so the second big thing is, what is spiritual warfare like today? Now, there's an old World War II movie called Patton, and in it there's American intelligence agents that, that intercept this strategy book by the German uh, commander, Erwin Rommel. And it's before this big battle that General Patton spends the night reading the enemy's book. And the next morning, they're, they're on the battlefield, and all the enemy's attacks are coming forward, and, and Patton expects all of them, and he, and he cuts all of them off. And in the movie, he's looking through these binoculars and he says, Rommel, you magnificent. And then there's an expletive. He says, I read your book. I read your book. And in a sense, that's what we need to do with, with our own spiritual enemy. Not to give any extra attention or time than, than we should, but simply to understand what the schemes of our enemy are. And once we understand them, to be able to take our stand in Christ's victory. There are at least four primary forms of demonic activity that we see in the scriptures that extend to us today. There's far more than four, but I'll just give you four. I, I started reading this book by a, a 17th century Puritan yesterday, uh, and he listed like 29 forms of demonic activity. 
was like, I need to put this book down because my sermon's already 40 minutes. I'm going to have way too much content. I'll come back to it later. I'm going to just give you four. So the first one is planting sinful thoughts and motivations in our hearts and minds. The enemy plants sinful thoughts and motivations in us. We see this in Acts 5, that the devil does this through Ananias and Sapphira. And it doesn't mean that the enemy can, can read our thoughts, but that it can, it can view our lives and it can bring these attacks against us. A lot of times these attacks come to our, our weak points and to our, our places where we have an, an inclination to sin. I call them sinclinations. Where we have inclinations to sin, that's where the enemy hits, planting sinful thoughts and motivations. And you might ask, how do I know that something is a, a, a demonic or spiritual attack against me and not just my own thoughts or my own sin? And typically a good rule of thumb is how the, the thought or the motivation emerged. If your mind is sort of wandering and you find yourself uh, you know, thinking about things, whether it's lustful or, or greedy or, or envious, it's most likely just a sinful thought, part of your flesh to, to submit to the Lord. But if there's a thought that comes into your mind suddenly with no connection to anything else you were thinking and it just sort of attacks you all at once, and typically that's a demonic sort of attack, a thought or a motivation that comes flooding in. But whether it's just a thought of your own or something from the enemy, the response is the same, which is to turn to Jesus, seek his help. Bring it before the Lord and entrust yourself to him. Confess your sins, but also receive the forgiveness that you have in God. And this is so important because the devil wants to keep us in guilt and shame, wants to tell you that you are not worthy, that God doesn't love you, that you don't have what it takes, that you're a failure, that you should give up. Those are all lies that the enemy wants you to believe day in and day out. Now, the second thing is that the enemy will lure people into traps of money, sex, power, and false beliefs. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul warns of falling into the trap of the devil. 1 Corinthians 10, we see demons promoting idolatry and receiving the worship of non-Christian religions. 2 Corinthians 10, we see demonic influence over particular non-Christian ideologies. Paul says, lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. And so there are these dark demonic forces that even, even shape the ideologies in our culture. Now, I often quote from the movie The Usual Suspects, which is about this just a, a, a horrible, you know, twisted criminal uh, who is played by an actor who turned out to be pretty bad himself. But the opening line of the movie is this, the greatest trick the devil, devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. If the devil can convince us that he doesn't exist, that he's not real, then we will shut down and we'll be lured into these traps of money, sex, power, false beliefs. And again, the devil's trying to, to capitalize on our sinclinations, our sin proclivities, our sinclivities. He watches us, he studies us, and he knows where to attack. That's the third thing as well, attacking our moments of weakness and in moments of opportunity. In Acts 10, we see that Satan is the cause of some, but, but certainly not all, physical illnesses and disease. So he can cause physical disease, and, and that's, that's often the case, and yet if you're sick, your first thought doesn't need to be, is this a, a demonic attack? I think the devil can also just cause general life chaos, and I know that you know what I'm talking about. There are certain times when, when you're either trying to press closer to the Lord or trying to do something under stress, and it's like all hell just breaks loose. 
So if you're trying to get little kids ready for church and get down to the service by 10 a.m., all hell breaks loose, right? If you're married and you're trying to get away for date night or you're, you're trying to get a retreat with, with your spouse, all hell will break loose. If you're sick and tired, if you're overwhelmed and grumpy, you haven't read your Bible in a month, all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. And in spiritual warfare, just like in the NBA playoffs, the best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. Rather than than waiting and sitting back to be attacked and then resisting it, the best defense is to go on the offensive. Not necessarily directly attacking the devil, but rather reading the scriptures, praying, remaining in spiritual community, remaining connected to those around you. These are things that prevent and, and minimize the devil's attacks in your life. Now, the fourth thing is that the devil loves to undermine church health and growth. In Luke 22, we see Satan test Peter's loyalty to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul states that Satan has a strategic design to undermine the unity of local congregations. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to oppose the spread of the gospel. And so ourselves, as a a young and growing congregation, we need to be aware that these things can and probably will take place in our midst. I remember back at the end of 2019, Pastor Casey and I were were doing our weekly meeting and we both felt the Lord, his presence moving in us to to not simply play defense in the church, but rather to play offense in the sense of of being more more focused on prayer, more focused on worship. It's not that we necessarily changed anything, but it led to our our unique focus on on prayer last year and then worship this year as our, our big theme for the year. But we also said if we do this, if we really try to seek the renewal of our city through prayer and worship, we better expect more spiritual warfare. And sure enough, over the last 18 months, we've seen increased demonic opposition. We've had really difficult accusations made by people that we had tried to love and serve. We've had leaders struggle with nightmares and insomnia. I personally know whenever we're in a season of of exciting growth and ministry in the church because my kids begin to have night terrors. And not just basic night terrors that that you can talk to your pediatrician about and and that have medical explanations, but but night terrors where our kids are waking up saying there was a dark figure saying he was going to choke or kill me, or they wake up in the middle of the night half awake just screaming things that they would never normally say. And I just feel like that's the lowest low to attack your kids, right? I mean, there's, there's no fairness in spiritual warfare. We've even seen direct demonic activity in the last 18 months and prayed to cast out evil spirits. And so there is, there is nothing in me that wants to make this any more dramatic than it is. I, I, I don't get any joy out of trying to, to, to stir up like, isn't this crazy? Look at all the crazy stuff that's happening but rather this stuff is real. It's all over the scriptures and it happens in the church today. And so what we can't do is to either be so fearful of spiritual warfare that we're paralyzed or to become proud in spiritual warfare that God delivers us from. So to say, well, look look at how we've gotten through all this spiritual warfare. Look how we've been delivered from these really hard things. You know, I I get an extra spiritual warfare attack because I'm so close to the Lord. No, pride can can slip in so easily. And I love in Luke 10, 
Jesus sends out his 70 disciples and they, they go out and they, they share the gospel and they're able to cast out demons and heal people and they come back just like on fire and they say, Lord, even the demons were subject to your name. And Jesus says, do not rejoice that the evil spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't re rejoice in, in any power or authority that I give you, but rather just rejoice that you are a child of God. All spiritual warfare should drive us humbly to our Savior. All right, now the third and final thing, how the war is won. I think often the way that we teach this, this passage is just simply to go from the, the devil's attacks against us to what we must do which is sort of what the passage does to say, okay, here's what the enemy does, and now here's what we do. But there's a risk there if we're not understanding the whole context of Ephesians in the New Testament, because this is not just a battle between demons and us where we have to, we have to pull ourselves together and be strong enough to fight off these attacks. No, instead, first, we need to understand what Christ has done for us, that Christ achieves the victory so that we can stand because to, to stand up here and to say, be strong or, or, or stand your ground, you can only say that if the gospel is true. If Christ really has overcome Satan, sin, and death. See, God uses a lot of things. He, he invites us into a lot of things to, to participate with him. I mean, you think about evangelism, God uses us in the saving of other people. God uses us in, in raising children in the faith. You know, God uses us in the renewal of all things, which is something we say a lot here. But when it comes to the, the singular definitive defeat of Satan's sin and death, Jesus just did that on his own. Like that's not something that he needed us to participate in, but rather Jesus made the definitive victory over Satan. And we know this from the New Testament. There's a, there's a scene in Matthew 8 where two demonized men see Jesus, and they, they just know it's not going to go well for them. So just at a distance, they see Jesus of Nazareth, and they cry out, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? See, even the demons know that they have been defeated, that the time is coming where they will be completely wiped out. The mere sight of Jesus is terrifying for them. And Dr. Storms writes, the key to victory in spiritual warfare is knowing both what Jesus Christ has done for you and what he has done to Satan. Christians too often live in fear of what they think the devil might do but can't, or in ignorance of what they themselves can do but don't. Although we must fight and resist the devil, let us never forget that we engage a defeated foe. We only stand in, in response to these threats because Christ has defeated our foe. And there's a couple ways that this happened. First of all, Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to defeat the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so the, the first stage of Jesus' definitive victory over Satan, it was actually just his coming to earth, his life, his incarnation. That begun the defeat of our enemy that had been planned from long ago. And, and it sort of makes sense when you consider, you know, the Christmas narrative where, uh, where it says that Herod ordered the death of every, you know, young male in Bethlehem under the age of two, which just seems like such a bizarre thing to order. 
I mean, to, to order the killing of all young boys in a particular village. Could it be that that was a, a form of demonic attack and, and, a, and a way to try to kill Jesus before he could make it any further? Now, the second thing is that Jesus demonstrates his power over Satan by resisting his temptations. This is not something I had really thought about a lot until I began studying spiritual warfare a little bit more. But Jesus' overcoming of the devil and the temptations in, in the wilderness was a major defeat of Satan leading up to the cross. And so in other words, in Matthew 4, when, when Jesus is led out into the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights he has nothing to eat, nothing to drink, when he's at his very weakest, the devil comes and hits him. I mean, three temptations, you know, power, control, popularity, and fame, offering Jesus the entire world, and yet Jesus resists. He quotes scripture, and then the last thing he says is simply, be gone, Satan. Now, in Luke uh, 4, it says that the devil left him to wait for an opportune moment. I think that's helpful to realize that often we resist the devil and he flees from us, as 1 Peter 5 says, and yet he does so to wait for another opportune moment to attack. Now, third, Jesus demonstrates his authority over Satan by casting out demons. I think that's pretty straightforward. We don't need to do a lot more there other than the fact to realize that every time Jesus casts out a demon, it's demonstrating his authority over Satan. Now, the last one is the most important. This is the most important thing in the whole message that Jesus achieves the ultimate victory over Satan's sin and death in the cross and resurrection. His, his victory has one definitive moment where it happened, and it's the cross and the resurrection. If we were to summarize all the purposes of the devil into two things, it would be that he wants to oppose God and his plan of redemption, and he wants to keep people in darkness. And so on the cross, it looks like those things have been accomplished. It looks like God's plan has been thwarted because our Savior has been killed. It looks like we're going to remain in darkness when we see our Lord die. And yet it's in that very moment that we are freed from our sins. As Christ pays the penalty for our death, we are liberated. And of course, when he rises from the grave, we receive the same new life in the power of the resurrection. It is the ultimate once-for-all defeat of Satan, sin, and death. Ephesians 1 says it like this, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Colossians 2, we read earlier in our assurance of pardon, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross." In the words of the old hymn, Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so if you notice that Colossians uses this phrase that Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities, it means he has canceled their power. Literally, he has stripped from them their power and authority through the cross and resurrection. 
That's what the cross does. What was what looked like an instrument of humiliating death became the instrument of our redemption. What looked like the moment of the greatest defeat turned out to be the moment of greatest victory for Jesus and the kingdom of God. The moment of greatest weakness was actually the moment of overwhelming power and authority. Even the devil's strongest efforts to to break us or to keep us in darkness, to attack us. All of those things actually serve for more of God's glory and more of our good. Every single attack that the enemy makes against us gets flipped back on him and, and, and only hurts his cause and, and enables more glory for God in his kingdom. I mean, how frustrating that must be that your absolute best attacks get flipped back on you and it works out for God's glory every single time. Everything that the devil does, his strongest efforts, they all play perfectly into God's plan of redemption. So we can't be ignorant of the devil's schemes, but we don't have to be afraid either. The victory has been completely won. I mean, we participated in extending that victory on earth, but it has already been accomplished. It is finished. Our enemy has been wiped out, and and though he remains on earth trying to, to grab us before he hits the grave, we have the victory in Christ. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ's grace, his power, his authority, where all things are now subject underneath him, under his feet. The enemy is stripped and bound. Your sin has been canceled. Christ is risen. And so therefore, Paul says, stand firm. Stand firm. And once you have done absolutely everything, continue to stand firm. Let's pray.